lesson. Uh, I always plan it very carefully so that we have a, a nice little Christmas lesson before we break. And uh, ours was on the beheading of John the Baptist, uh, if you remember, in Mark chapter 6. Nice little Christmas lesson there. Uh, if you'll turn to Mark 6, we'll just pick up right there where we left off. We finished with verse 29. We looked at how, uh, how John the Baptist, through speaking the truth and standing up for the truth, got his head lopped off. And then we're going to see what Jesus does with the disciples after that. We know, not just from this text, but from others, that when that happened, that was a serious turn in Jesus' ministry. The one who had been the forerunner was now gone. And Jesus was standing alone, if you will, as the prophet. And uh, he really goes out to reflect on the meaning of all that. But Mark shows us clearly he also used it as a very special time to train his disciples. When John the Baptist goes off the scene, Jesus just simply recommits himself to the training of, of his own disciples and to building the kingdom. There's nobody who's indispensable. The only one who's indispensable is Jesus. And fortunately, he's the one who comes back from the dead. You can't kill him. Uh, so everybody else is dispensable. John the Baptist now, the greatest man who ever lived before Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said about him. Greatest man who ever lived is off the scene. So what do we do? Get back to work. Uh, because nobody is indispensable, including John the Baptist. And that's what Jesus does. He's going to take his disciples out and teach them. And um, what I'm going to suggest we do is look, we've got a, uh, we're going to finish all of chapter six today. And it breaks down into really uh, three segments. There's three scenes or venues where Jesus is going to teach his disciples. And the teaching that he gives them is extremely important for us today. And I want us to take note of each one of these venues, each of which has its purpose in Jesus' teaching ministry in their lives. He's teaching them things that, that they needed to know in their day. And he's teaching them things that we need to know in our day. Well, let's take a look at Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 30, and we'll look through verse 44 to begin with. The apostles gathered around Jesus. And reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy some, themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight Months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Okay, let's stop here. 
Jesus is going to teach them, and he teaches us today, his provision in our poverty. That's what this, this section is all about. And uh, this is a very uh, meaningful setting. And we're going to see that Jesus here in this text chooses the time and the place. It's of his choosing. He's teaching them a very important lesson. And the time is that they had just reported what they had done. So they had come to him to tell him all the things that they had done out there on their mission in which he had just sent them. And they come back to give their report. And this is when Jesus is going to hear their reports, but he's also going to take them to the next level. We get so excited about what's happened in our lives and we don't realize that God is inexhaustible and he has a lot more to teach us. So, yes, indeed, there's a time and there's a place for us to share our spiritual triumphs and our spiritual failures. And then we sit down and listen because we have so much more to learn. Every single one of us. God is infinite in his being. His wisdom is unsearchable. So how could any of us think that we've ever arrived? So they come back to give their their lesson and Jesus is ready to teach them. Now, notice the place. This is most significant. It is the wilderness. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, quiet place, solitary place. You'll find this in Mark chapter one, verse 12, where Jesus goes out into the wilderness himself. You remember that the spirit sends him out into the wilderness. And now what does Jesus, who is full of the spirit beyond measure, measure, what does he do? Takes him out into the wilderness. Why? Because he wants to teach them. And uh, that's the way it is with us. Sometimes we wonder why we're having a wilderness experience. I wonder that myself sometimes. And I'm trying to find all the causes for it. And little do I stop to think, well, that's not what's important. What's important is what's the purpose of being in the wilderness? And the purpose of being in the wilderness is to learn from Jesus Christ. So he plans to teach them in the wilderness. Now, the reason this is so important, if you look at the text that I cite there, Exodus 15 through 17, for example, what happens in the wilderness with the children of Israel? Manna comes down from heaven. Water comes out of a rock. God provides for his people in the wilderness. He gives them rest. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 12, you'll find that God is promising them rest. He's going to take them into the promised land. So while they're in the wilderness, he provides for them. And then he promises that he's going to give them the fullness of abundance of the provisions that they need and want. And then, of course, uh, in Jeremiah 31, you get the same sort of thing where God is promising rest to his people. So when Jesus takes them out into the wilderness, like a prophet who is giving them a living parable or a symbol by which they can understand meaning that he's conveying, he, he draws a picture for them and he physically takes them out into a into a wilderness just across the lake, a little solitary place, because he's playing out the role of the new Moses who is going to be God's spokesman to say, I'll provide for you here and I'm taking you to a place that's going to give you ultimate rest. That is the key thing that we need to know this morning about life. Uh, I I noticed in the newspaper on uh, Monday, New Year's Day, commercial appeal, that uh, the polls are in. Now we know what most people are resolving to do this year. Uh, Number one is to get more exercise. How many of you resolve to get more exercise this year? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Yeah, that's number one. Yeah. Thank you, John Coakley. I think that'd be a real good idea to get some more exercise. Uh, How many of you resolved number two on the list was to eat less? Yes, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, just just bow that head and slip up that hand. Mm -hmm. 
And then the thirdly was we're going to save more money. Anybody here resolved to save more money this year? You don't want to admit it. Uh, then fourthly uh, was uh, going to get more organized this year. And fifthly was to spend less. And the sixthly in the, uh, said in the paper was to treat me. <laughs> I'm sure that's on the American list. Treat me. So all these New Year's resolutions, and I, I noticed that on the list, uh, in the top six was not, I'm going to read my Bible more. Uh, but I hope some of you made that resolution. Or maybe some other resolutions about your prayer life or your worship life or your giving life. Uh, those weren't in the top uh, six in American uh, New Year's resolutions. But the point is, everybody makes New Year's re- resolutions. Uh, the beginning of the year is typically the time when I decide, how am I going to read the Bible this year? And I get my Bible reading plan. That's kind of my resolution at the beginning of every year. And I've got a new approach this year that I'm enjoying already. And who knows how long it'll last. Most New Year's resolutions don't last through the first week. Uh, most of them, actually. Now, notice when Jesus takes them out into the wilderness, he doesn't really take them out to make all their resolutions. That's not the main thing he's doing with them. The main thing he's doing with them is teaching them about himself. And that in himself, they are going to have all they need. He's teaching them rest. Physical rest is important. But at the heart of physical rest is spiritual rest. That you're really handing over your little kingdom to him. You're handing over your life and your days to him. You are really going to trust him. You are not going to be operating under the illusion this year that you're going to engineer 2007. You can't engineer the next hour. You can't engineer anything, really. And so the biggest lesson Jesus teaches them when they come back in all of their enthusiasm to tell him about their spiritual exploits. (laughs) He just says, "Okay, boys, uh, just come follow me for a minute. Takes them out of the wilderness so they can learn the most important thing. And guys, this is the most important thing. If we'll just let ourselves this morning go out into the wilderness with Jesus Christ for just for just this hour together. And learn this one thing about Him. You will have learned the most important thing about 2007. Beyond any of the resolutions that we might make. Well, that's the time and the place. And the place is very important. It's highly symbolic. Um, And you'll notice that He is showing it to His disciples. There's some things He teaches the crowds. There's some things He teaches the 500 who would follow Him. But there are some things he teaches those who follow him most closely. And for those of you who have been following Jesus for a long, long time, I have a feeling that this would be you'd be the ones that he would teach this lesson most powerfully. And that is to go off into the wilderness with him by yourself and understand who's in charge and who is the one who's providing for you. So first thing is he chooses the time and place and it's very significant. And um, the, the problem that we all have is that we do have underdeveloped views of God. I think it was Chesterton who said the most important thing about a man is what he believes about God. That's the most important thing about you. It's called theology. Your study of God or your view of God. That's the most important thing about you. And all of us have underdeveloped views. 
One of you uh, sent me some views of kids who wrote God letters. Uh, they were on the Internet the other day. And here's a little Ruth who says, Dear God, I think the stapler is one of your greatest inventions. Uh, and here's little Elliot who says, Dear God, I think about you sometimes, even when I'm not praying. And little Joy said, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. Uh, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Uh, Little Nan prays, dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. (laughs) Little Jenny says, dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's no there's nothing good in there now. Uh, And then little Denise says, dear God, if we come back as something Please don't let me be Jennifer Horton because I hate her. (laughs) That's so typical. These stupid prayers we pray, you know, not even realizing that we're sinning even in the prayer itself. Dear God, says Raphael, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money or my chest set. Now, does that sound like an adult disciple? It sure does to me. Lord, anything except my bank account. Here's Peter who says, dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this year. (laughs) And then lastly, Larry says, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. (laughs) Now, of course, you see, the reason all those little prayers by these little people are so funny is because of their naive, small view of God. They treat him like a mascot or a bellhop uh, or a genie. And it's funny, isn't it? And what do you think a really mature, what do you think Moses would think of our prayers? Probably laugh a lot of the time because of the limited view of God of the very time-bound perspective based on our own little wants and needs, not to send so-and-so to camp next year, you know, that we've got these little needs in our little time-bound life, and it's just funny how we pray as just little kids. And that's what Jesus is seeking to tell the disciples. Your view of God and the Messiah is far too small uh, for adult disciples. Well, look what Jesus is doing in this time and place. The first thing he's going to do is reveal our poverty. And the first thing about our poverty is that we lack leadership. He he looks at the crowds and we are told that uh, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. This is uh, verse 33 to 38 and uh, particularly in verse 34. He says he had compassion on the large crowd because They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, once again, this recalls a lot of language out of the Old Testament. I've listed just a few places there. Uh, You might consider verse uh, uh, Ezekiel 34, 5, especially. Why don't we look at that for just a moment? Uh, Ezekiel 34, 5 is uh, page 1353 in your Bibles. If you have the spirit of the Reformation study Bible, uh, Ezekiel 34, 5, page 1353. Here, uh, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And here's what the word of the Lord said to him. Verse 2, 
of chapter 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, the shepherds of Israel were actually the kings. So uh, kings, those in political power, were known as shepherds. So he says, uh, uh, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Ah, there's a radical idea. Instead of kings ingratiating themselves uh, to themselves, and instead of filling their own storehouses, why don't they take care of the people? And there's a radical idea. He says in verse 3, you eat the curds and clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice of animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Okay, this is the complaint about the kings of Israel. They just simply cared about themselves. And uh, what's interesting, and stay there in Ezekiel 34 for just a minute because we're not through with that text. But it's interesting that in Jesus' day, there was a very stark comparison between Jesus and one who did exactly what Ezekiel was prophesying about. And that would be whom? Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who had just beheaded John the Baptist. Herod the Antipas, who wanted to be the king of Israel. Herod Antipas, who wanted to be considered the son of David. A shepherd. Herod Antipas, who just took off the head of his most righteous citizen. And here you have this stark contrast between Jesus the shepherd and Herod Antipas. And just think for a minute, if you would, about the line, the inglorious line of Herod's. Herod the Great, who in order to try to take the life of infant Jesus, took the lives of every two-year-old boy or younger in all of Bethlehem, Judea. Brutal, even killed some of his own sons when he suspected that they could undermine his own political power. A brutal man, Herod the Great. His son, Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, was in Jerusalem when Joseph was coming back from Egypt. And Joseph was, was terrified of him. And that's the reason he went on back to Galilee around Jerusalem, because he was afraid of Herod Archelaus. Another son of Herod the Great was Herod Antipas. And who beheaded John the Baptist and who later on interviewed Jesus and just wanted him to do a power trick. Had no interest in who Jesus was or the meaning of his appearance on the earth. His nephew, Herod Antipas' nephew, uh, Herod Agrippa I, was the one who took off the head of, it was the first uh, apostle to lose his life. James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa II, here's the fifth Herod was the one before whom the Apostle Paul appeared and heard this most amazing testimony from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 and then just made light of it and said, what, would you, would you persuade me to become a Christian? 
This was the line of Herod's. And Jesus sees his people as a people who are without a shepherd, like sheep who have no shepherd, who only cares about himself. I couldn't help but think about that this past week. We had two funerals. There was a funeral on December the 31st in Tikrit, Iraq. And there was a funeral in California and Washington, D.C. and Grand Rapids yesterday. Two men. One who serves for 29 months. One of the shortest presidencies in American history. One who serves for over 30 years. One who did everything in his power to spare the lives of 150,000 Vietnamese refugees at the time that the government was finally collapsing under his administration. One who took the lives of two million of his own people, whom he assumed were bringing his own political power at risk. One whose casket was surrounded by family, who dearly loved him and loved each other, and each of whom are making their own significant contribution to the welfare of society. And one surrounded by a few of his family members who were, revenge, who were promising revenge against their countrymen for their, father's, uh, their relative's death. Here you have a stark comparison between two people. And Jesus is basically saying to the disciples, every single one of us is going to die. Every single one of us is going to have somebody surrounded our casket. Every single one of us is going to leave some sort of legacy. And the one who leaves a legacy for which people are deeply grateful and which will have an impact on generations to come is not the one who thinks that he can control history by manipulating other people, deceiving other people, intimidating other people, and using the means of human power to get his will Enforced. The one who will be remembered and the one who will make an impact is the one who follows the real shepherd. Who, when he was before Herod, being charged with all kinds of questions, did not even open his mouth to defend himself. There's a basic choice presented in the scriptures about how you want to lead your life. And there's a basic answer given. For the results of one kind of life or another. And there's a basic choice that everybody in this room and every other room in the world has to make about which route you're going to go. Jesus looked at the crowds and he could see the impact of being under the leadership of someone who did not lay down his life for the people, but who took the people's lives for himself. And what was interesting in some analysis, analyses of Iraq right now is you'll you'll Here, historians say we had no idea that this brutal rain would cause other people to be so brutal. A surprise. We expected to go in and find these noble, good-hearted people who had all come from functional families, so relieved and grateful to be delivered from this anomaly, this weird thing happening in Iraq, this brutal dictator, and then they were all going to be functional. Everybody's so surprised. No. When you have a man who seeks to lead his own family or his own country or his own business through brutal, manipulative, deceitful, hateful means, it's going to ripple through generations to come. It's going to change the nature of everybody under his influence. 
That's what you see in Iraq. That's what you see in Israel. Jesus looks out and he can see all the evidences of people who are broken. Some of you in this room are broken because your father was a tyrant. And probably his father was a tyrant. Some of you are broken because your father did this, that, or the other. Didn't take up responsibility, whatever it was. And you know what you look like? A little lamb that doesn't have a shepherd. And when Jesus looks out and sees all these rippling effects of this kind of leadership that is non-sacrificial, that is self-centered, that is brutal, he looks at them with deep compassion, we're told. He doesn't look at it and say, I want to get out of here. These people geek me out. He looked on the crowds with profound compassion. It's his bowels. We say it moved his heart. In those days, it moves. it's right down in here. He had this deep compassion welling up from within him for the crowds. And here was his description. They're like sheep who don't have a shepherd. These people need a shepherd. And gentlemen, let me tell you something. You know what your world around you needs today? They need a shepherd. Now, it's interesting when you come to the New Testament, Jesus Christ, of course, presents himself as the good shepherd. This is the ultimate answer for you and for me. And no matter how you were shepherded as a little boy, Jesus Christ can overcome that. Jesus Christ can take all of your pains and all of your brokenness and turn it into a powerful weapon of compassion to use with other people who need a shepherd who understands. And people who have not been shepherded well understand. They're people who have the possibility of of sympathizing at a level deeper than anybody else can possibly sympathize because they've been there, done that. I know it. And they can connect with people who have not had a good shepherd. And Jesus Christ's heart goes out to them and he provides himself as shepherd. This is the answer. Would you please notice what he does when he gets them out there? They are like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? He teaches them. He teaches about what? The kingdom. What difference does a kingdom make? A kingdom has a king. What difference does that make? This king is a good shepherd. And that's what we do. We go out and teach. We present the good shepherd and the new kingdom. Which is the healing paradigm for everybody in the world. They need to have a shepherd. And what do you notice in the scriptures about pastors and elders? About men who will take up spiritual leadership? What are they called? Shepherds. And when you look at Ezekiel 34, the intention is that we apply all that kingly language in the Old Testament and all the warnings about these wicked kings to ourselves as shepherds in the kingdom of God. Our means are not with a sword. We don't throw people in jail for not believing in Jesus Christ or for not tithing. Otherwise, I'd be having amen Bible studies, a prison ministry, I'm afraid. <laughs> so we don't use the means of this world and we don't use coercion. We use the word of God. We teach. And my dear friends, it's powerful. When someone teaches you and it rings true in your heart that this is the word of God, that's powerful. It's a lot more powerful than throwing you in prison. Some of you have been there and it didn't make a whole lot of difference, did it? 
So that's what Jesus does. He teaches. And when you look in the Old Testament and see how shepherds are excoriated for their selfish behavior and their lack of concern for the sheep who are going over the hillside, who are scattered, who are vulnerable, who are weak, who are lost. You see those same charges now come to men in the New Testament era who are to have the hearts of shepherds. How can we live a Christian life? How can we go to church and not be concerned for the person one pew over? You can't do that if you're listening to Jesus Christ. If you're really learning of Him, you develop a shepherding heart, first of all, for yourself. You learn how to shepherd yourself. And then you learn how to shepherd other people, beginning with your own wife and children and grandchildren. You are cultivating a shepherd's heart. That's exactly what Jesus does. Takes them out into the wilderness. What will the meaning of our retreat be at the end of February, beginning of March? Is to get out in the wilderness and, and remind ourselves of something very important. Jesus Christ is our shepherd. He's the one who provides for us. And what does a shepherd do? He does the same thing. He gets them out he, and he gets them together. He says, let's remember the most important thing in life. That's what shepherds do. That's what men do. Who have listened to Jesus and who are imitating him. They look for every opportunity to shepherd. You say, well, I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an officer. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. Every man in this room has people under his influence. And the question is, what is your view of them? Are they there to promote your self-interest, to promote your welfare, to make your business more profitable, to make your reputation greater, to make your procedures more successful? Or are they there for you to serve? That's the big paradigm shift. And Jesus is taking them out in the wilderness and giving them exhibit A. This is what a shepherd does. He takes his sheep out and ministers to them. And he does that. He teaches them. And he's going to show them something very important. He reveals our poverty. We lack leadership. He gives it to us. And we lack resources. And sometimes, gentlemen, we need to be shown this. We think we've got it all together. You know, you get to a certain age and you think, well, I think I've just about got my retirement nipped in the bud. Life's mission is accomplished. Huh? That's what it's all about. Get to that point where you can put your feet up and you don't need anybody. Well, as Jesus told the parable, you build all these barns and get all your stuff in them. And then the flood comes and takes it all away. Now who's the idiot? And uh, so we learn we have to be taught over and over again. We can't control Anything, even including our own savings accounts. Now let's turn back to Mark chapter 6. And you'll see there that he says to them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) You say, why did Jesus say that? He knew they couldn't give him anything to eat. Why did he say that? Here's why. Those of you uh, who are in business or have to make business decisions, you know, there are two different ways to decide Uh, to make decisions that deal with finances. One is allocative. That is, you take what's readily available and you divide it up. That's one way to do budgeting. The other is what we call innovative, that you not only divide up what is right in front of you, but you're thinking innovatively about the revenue side. So that you're, you're you're actually distributing innovatively. And a lot of times this is true in church, you know, you'll get to budget time and, and, uh, Someone with a lot of faith will say, well, I think we can go up 2% this year. Uh, 
Someone will say, well, maybe we can go 6%. Oh, where's that going to come from? Well, you're not thinking innovatively. You're just thinking about last year's budget and how you're going to divide it up. But you all know if you're in a growing business, you have to think innovatively. You have to plan dynamically. You have to assume that the universe is a little bit larger than your last year's business plan. The universe is a little bit larger. And that's just one tiny little business example of how it is when we deal with things spiritually. We think that the power that we have available to us to do our ministries and do our jobs and to love our wives is right here in this skin. That's all I got. When you have an inexhaustible God ruling over you, loves you, has compassion upon you, and wants to pour out His energy into you, you better think innovatively, which is to say, what I've experienced in the past is no measure of what He might do in the future. Because my ability to appropriate the infinite power of God is very limited. And I need to open the sluice ways of my own heart and my own soul and take in the power of God and let Him use me in ways in which He's not used me in the past. Because I was the one cutting off the power. That's thinking innovatively. And that's exactly what Jesus is showing them. He's saying, you give them something to eat, which challenges them to think, okay, now... Where's this going to fit into the budget? <laughs> I mean, this is 200 denarii, literally, in the text. And one denarii is the payment for a full day's work. So that is 200 denarii. Uh, the way most of you work, that'd be about a year's wages. But you notice people in the Bible, they worked harder. So they, they said that's eight months wages. So that's 200 days, eight months wages. Now, Jesus, you know us. We don't come from privileged backgrounds. Do you think we're hiding money? I mean, we, we, we put everything we have into the till. And look at the till. There's nothing in there, Jesus. You want us to feed them? How are, you going to, how are we going to feed them? That's basically what they're saying to him. They're thinking allocatively. They, they haven't realized who Jesus is. This is the purpose of the retreat. To expand your thinking. To realize that God is bigger than you thought He was and He loves you more than you thought He did. And He's willing to work through you. So, He says, you give them something to eat, which first of all causes them to look at their natural resources. <laughs> That's the first thing they do. Of course. It's what we all do. Well, if we had the budget, we'd just pay for it. We don't have the budget. So, Jesus, we don't have any answer. So, what He does is He's revealing their poverty of faith. And gentlemen, when he gets you in a spot, and some of you are in one. I've been in one recently. I was in this kind of spot. And I was looking at all the natural answers for it. And I got to the point where I said, well, there's no answer. Wrong. There's no answer in your current natural resources. But there is an answer. And it is the shepherd of your soul. He's big. He's rich. And he's a lover. And Jesus just simply says to him, he doesn't say, he doesn't chide them at that point. He just says, sit them down. And they get in groups of 50 and 100. And so it's pretty easy to count them up. You know, 50 times 100 is 5,000. And Capernaum at that day and Bethsaida probably had two or 3,000 people in the whole village. 
So here you have the equivalent of two sizable villages piled up in one crowd. Of course, no, none of us could feed them. I don't mean to be so harsh toward Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and all the rest. Of course, they couldn't feed them. But they just, they just didn't know how great Jesus was. And he says, sit him down. And he says, just find what you can find. And it's a silly, it's a silly task. Five, five little, little biscuits, two teeny little fish. It's a joke. Why even bring it to Jesus? But they did because he told them to. Sometimes you think, my little gift to, to the kingdom of God, my little involvement in this ministry or that ministry or this civic work or that civic work, it's just so little, doesn't make any difference. But you put it in the hands of Jesus, it makes a huge difference. You put five little biscuits and two little fish in the hands of Jesus to feed 5,000, look what happens. He feeds them. He satisfies them. He exceeds their every expectation. That's what happens. He reveals His provision. And He shows who He is. He explains that He's the shepherd who not only has the heart for this business, but He has the resources for this business. He not only wants to do good things for people, He's actually able to do good things for people if you'll trust Him. And He'll do it through you if you'll let Him. If you will stop measuring yourself by your natural resources and start measuring yourself by one thing. And that is you have a loving relationship with the shepherd. That's all you need. It was interesting that uh, Mike Yancey wrote a editorial not too long ago. And he, he was talking about how evangelical Protestant Christians get all fired up uh, about their political influence. And especially here in the past 25 years, gentlemen, would you say, uh, evangelical Protestant Christians have been highlighted as a voting block and power group and we have our own jet set and they jet to Washington. And Yancey says, you know, all these people get so impressed with themselves uh, when they're invited to the White House. And he says, I know, I've been invited too. Uh, but he says, you know, the thing everybody has to remember when if you ever get an opportunity to speak to the president is you have to put it in one or two sentences. If you want, if you want to say anything, you have to boil it down because that's about all you get. And you're going to get one idea across if you want to say anything. And he said the best example I ever saw was when Dr. Mark Knoll, the Christian historian, uh, was invited to the White House. And he said, I heard the president actually said, okay, if you had five minutes to give the president advice, what would you say? And went around the room and said, Mark Knoll just said this. He said, Mr. President, I'll tell you the same thing I would tell academics or just you know, the normal guy on the street. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and follow him radically. There you have it. Like Dr. Knoll gave the president great advice. Just put your trust in Jesus Christ and follow him radically. If it's true for president, it's probably true for you too. Why don't you just do one thing? Why don't you just put your trust in the shepherd? And why don't, you take, why don't you follow him wherever he takes you? And why don't you do in those places what he wants you to do? And why don't you learn, number one, who he is in whatever situation you're in? So the next venue is in verses 45 through 52. And that's not the wilderness. Here's the sea. These are very significant venues. Uh, the wilderness is symbolic. So is the sea. The sea is where the Leviathan lives. Where, from, where the, from whence the demons come. 
uh, in Jewish cosmology. And so they're going to take them to the sea. And we've already been on the sea in, in Mark chapter 4. Here they're going again. And uh, let's look at this text, verse 45 through 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. All right. Notice Jesus teaches us not only his provision in our poverty, but his power in our weakness. He's going to show us our weakness. He's going to show us our poverty. He's going to show us his power just as he showed his provision. Jesus, once again, chooses the time and the place. The time is immediately, you notice the word there at the beginning of verse 45, immediately after a world-class lesson. Okay, so we're a little slow. We need another lesson. He just taught us about his shepherding heart and about his infinite power. So let's do it again. Let's see, let's see if we get it this time. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Oh, when you find yourself just one F right after another. You know, you think you got it. I, you know, next time that comes along, I'm going to do that one better. Well, he shows us how we do usually on the second time. The place is at the sea. And note here, Jesus directs us. He prays for us. He watches over us. They were out there on the sea. They were already afraid. They were weary. They were tired. They were frustrated. Why did Jesus put us in this boat? Nah, 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 nah. And all the while, Jesus is up on the hillside talking to his father. He's got them in full view. He's watching everything they're doing. And he knows their hearts. He's just watching over them. Like a shepherd. He's got his eye on you. Gentlemen, you're out there facing one situation or another. And you think the big deal is that you've been violated. Someone treated you unjustly. Something didn't go right. You're going to get them next time. And you're missing the meaning of the whole experience. Which is, Jesus is teaching you something. Have you ever slowed down in your difficult moments? You know, after you figured out whose fault this was? <laughs> and what letter you were going to write to your stockholders to explain everything? Or whatever it is that you're facing? Have you ever stopped to say, what is the Lord teaching me in this? Not about how to avoid this next time. That's important. I'm not denying that. When I get in tough times, I want to know what happened, what went wrong here. I don't want to have this happen again. I do that too. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the main thing you think about, if that's the, certainly the only thing you think about, you missed the meaning of the sea. God has you in this for a purpose. And the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. He happens to have put you in this. He's the one who told them to get in the boat and go on without him. And he's watching them. He's praying for them. He's concerned about their hearts just the way he is for you. And all the while we're down here dealing with our little marbles 
making our mud pies and not realizing the beauty of the seashore and the grandeur of God's character because we missed the whole play. (laughs) We got our little subplots, but we missed the big plot, the meta narrative that's going on. That's what we see here. Jesus is on the mountainside praying for them. He directs them. He watches over us. What does he do? First of all, he reveals our weakness. He, he has us straining at the oars. The wind is against us. The world is against me. Nothing's ever going right. I can't get anything. And we're just striving and struggling. And we're frustrated. And we're feeling very futile and empty and vain. And we're ready to take our own lives and jump off the top of the Morgan Keegan building. And whatever else comes into mind, jump into the, off the bridge into the Mississippi River. And all Jesus is doing is just showing you your way ain't working. How could a man get so frustrated? The only way he can get so frustrated is if he thought he was supposed to be able to control his universe. That's what got you so frustrated. Because you were striving, thinking you could get across the sea by yourself. He shows our faithlessness. When we see Jesus, we go to worship. The preacher talks about him. We go to Amen Bible study. He talks about the shepherd. And we say, oh, yeah, that's a that's a ghost. (laughs) It's a fairy tale. It doesn't really have anything to do with me. It's not going to solve my problem. It's a nice fairy tale. It's not good to tell the children that. Kind of like Santa Claus and Tooth Fairy and, and the Bunny Rabbit and Jesus. You put it all in there, mix it up, and you got yourself a nice little cultural narrative. People can grow up with that. That'll work. It has nothing to do with me. That's exactly what they saw, a ghost. And then he reveals our fear. When they saw him, they were terrified. Because they didn't think that anybody with that kind of power could possibly be on their side. And sometimes that's the way we see Jesus. And then notice in verses 48b through 52, Jesus then reveals his power. Well, how does he reveal it? He walks with us. He went out to the walk on the lake. He doesn't have to have a perfect little environment. He can take storms. He can take high winds. He just walks over them. There's <laughs> no problem for him. You can invite him into every situation you have. Yeah, some of you have got some really difficult situations. Jesus can just walk right into it. Bring him in. Ask him in. He speaks to us. He'll communicate to us. And what does he say? Most thing, most important thing is, I am. And that's literally what, literally what it says. I am. This is one of those great I am moments. He's just saying, I am who I am. Like Moses saw in the burning bush. I am who I am. And Jesus says, I am. And the I am is here. He presents himself once again. The main thing about your storm and the main thing about your wilderness is to see that Jesus is he. And then he enters our boat. He climbs right into the boat. And the wind dies down. Well, what do you know? Wasn't that lucky? Wasn't that a mighty coincidence? This is really interesting. Isn't it just the moment that Jesus got in the boat, the wind died down? That's really odd. It's amazing how luck sometimes happens. That's the way we interpret it. Because we do not interpret the world as being in, under the charge of Jesus Christ. And then you notice in verses 51b and 52, he didn't get through to us. This is utterly amazing, isn't it? Here's a second chance. But we are told they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. We are easy to amaze and hard to teach. We are amazed by miracles. We're amazed by spiritual power. We're amazed by dramatic things, but we're very hard to teach. 
because we put the amazing things into our old paradigms. And we can be amazed that somebody else's marriage has really warmed up and improved. And men have really changed the way they behave toward their wives. We can be amazed at that, the revolution of human character. But try changing me. It's easy to be amazed. It's hard to be taught that you could be the one who could be kinder to your wife. You could be the one through whom God might work a miracle in your family. It's easy to be amazed that somebody could be such a fine citizen, a Gerald Ford of Memphis. That someone could be so giving and so have such little concern for their own financial welfare and really concerned for the poor. It's easy to be amazed. It's hard to be taught to become a person like that yourself. It's easy to be amazed that someone would be a radical in changing race relations in Memphis. Really go after it with all their zeal. Build meaningful relationships across racial lines. Build businesses where people who haven't had an opportunity now have an opportunity and have economic power. It's easy to be amazed at people who are so good to do that. It's hard to be taught to do that yourself. And that's exactly the way it is with these disciples. They're easily amazed. Not easily taught. Why? Jesus says, their hearts were hardened. This is the result of the fall. This is what happened to us when we were excused from the Garden of Eden. Our hearts were hardened toward God Himself. Do you know what it's like to have a hard heart? Maybe you do in relationships. Know what happens when your heart hardens towards someone? What Jesus is saying, that's what happened in man's relationship with God. His heart got hardened so that he can't even receive love. He can't even be taught love. He can't even work in the paradigm of trusting God because his heart is hard. What we need is a new heart. And what we're going to see is that's exactly what Jesus gives. I told you, he loves his sheep. And when his sheep have a hard heart, he says, I'll take care of that too. So he died for us on the cross, and he also took out the old heart, and he puts in a new heart. All you have to do is ask him. Come to him. Ask him for a new heart. And he gives it to us. So, lastly, let's look at these last verses. We have about three minutes. Verse 53. New venue. Jesus teaches us his compassion in our destitution. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mass to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Gentlemen, Jesus once again chooses the time and place. And what is the time? After two world-class lessons. Let's see if we get it this time. The place, the marketplace. The place where you work. They place their sick in the marketplaces. They're right where you work. They're right where you go. Today, that's where they are. Jesus reveals our destitution. They were running. They were carrying the sick. They begged Him because we have massive needs and we do not have effective remedies for these needs. And the world is full of people begging for relief. This city is full of people begging for relief in the educational system, begging for economic relief, begging for relief in housing, begging because they have no resources by which to solve the problem. 
And Jesus is revealing this to us. He does this to his disciples. He shows us the crowds. He not only loves the crowds, he wants us to see the crowds. He wants us to see them the same way he sees them. And they're begging for relief. And then Jesus reveals his own compassion. The people recognize Jesus. That's one thing, to be a popular and famous preacher, to be a Billy Graham. But it's another thing, that everyone who touched him was healed. Everyone who applied to him got help. Everyone who found him, found him to be compassionate and loving. The same is true today. Everyone who finds Jesus finds him to be a loving Savior. Jesus loves the poor and the hurting. And this will be true for us today. So what? Well, number one, your times and places have been chosen by him for a redemptive purpose. There are no accidents in your schedule. There are no accidents in your circumstances. Everything. You have a venue too. Wilderness, sea, marketplace. Where is it? Jesus is there. He's designing it. And he's drawing you to himself. Secondly, he's the only one who can satisfy your needs. You're not going to get them satisfied by yourself. He'll say to yourself, okay, feed yourself. And you think about it for a few minutes, you realize you can't feed yourself. You can't keep yourself alive. You can't take care of yourself. Okay, go ahead and try. And you're going to learn he's the only one who can satisfy you. You're going to learn he is the only one who can define you, define your target, and get you there. He's the only one who can show you where you're supposed to be going. You're going to supposed to go across the lake? Okay. How are you supposed to get there? By being a brother of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And what kind of power are you supposed to use to get you there? The power of Jesus Christ to calm down the wind. And he is the only one who can heal your deepest diseases and the diseases of those around you. It's a lesson about Jesus. And every hard spot you get into, gentlemen, the ultimate meaning is it's a lesson about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lesson about Jesus. Your son that you sent to us 2,000 years ago to be a shepherd for shepherdless sheep like ourselves. And we are profoundly grateful and we acknowledge that we are often like the disciples whose hearts were hardened, who didn't understand the lesson of the loaves, who didn't understand your provision and your power and your compassion. But Lord, we know that later on, when you gave them the fullness of your spirit, they received new hearts and they got it. And they went all over the world communicating the gospel of Christ, and they lay down their lives to follow you. And we pray that today we'll get it and that we will see the world the way you see it and we'll see even our own difficult moments the way you see them and see the purposes for which you've designed them that we may get you. This we pray in your precious name. Amen. God bless you, gents.